guys, Jeff? How are you today? I'm not bad. I'm, ba I'm just, I'm bathing in the chaos of my life. I'm just rubbing it all over myself. That's all we can do. <clears throat> it's one way to respond, anyway. Uh, there's so much going on, and, like, I, I think we both feel a little a shade underprepared for this episode. But you know what? Arguably, this whole concept of counting the Omer is all about a period of not yet being prepared. Yeah. Breaking it down. Being in the time between before you're ready. Yeah. Because this, because we're talking about counting the Omer, meaning counting the 49 days between Passover and Shavuot, between leaving Egypt and receiving the Torah. And it's a strange and seemingly very uh, sort of technical and persnickety holiday. I feel like it's having a moment right now in terms of people thinking about it in terms of a spiritual practice, but it really is rooted in this very specific, like you make this sacrifice on this day in the temple, and then you count these number of days, and then you make this other sacrifice in the temple. And there's a whole thing into the weeds of like, whether Maimonides has a whole thing about whether he thinks this is a mitzvah that exists in a rabbinic sense or in a Torah sense after the destruction of the temple like does it matter that we don't have a temple and that we're not doing these sacrifices anymore yeah somehow we still count the omer so it's this strangely vestigial legalistic thing but uh-huh as with all and also, yeah vestigial legalistic things there's like a beautiful flower that blooms yeah <laughs> and well also there's there's not that much thematic information given by the Torah or it, it, there's an air of mystery about it. And there's an air of like, almost like it's not, there's not that much to it. Just count, just right. count each day, seven weeks. Well, it's also, it's that. And it's also sort of accumulated a lot of sort of sundry associations. Like if we were in Hollywood making a mood board to pitch this as a practice, I think the producers <laughs> would say like, get your mood board together. Like this is all over the place. You know, even Shemini Atzeret, which is sort right. of under theorized, it's like dense enough that I think we can work some magic with it. This this mood board for this holiday is sort of all over the place. There are thematic associations yes. just coming at you from the randomest corners and they don't quite cohere. Right. There's like big anticipation. There's big grief. Uh, almost like different different needs are being slapped onto this. Like maybe we can meet this need with, with this yes. practice, or maybe we can meet this need too. <clears throat> um, but anyway, maybe you can give us like a, a super quick guide to, I don't know what the commandment is. I guess we've already sort of said it, but there's it's, an agricultural element too. Yeah. It's just to count that there's, and, and there's a blessing you say, you know, every day in the evening, starting the second day of Pesach, you count, you say a blessing for being commanded to count the Omer. You say which day it is, and eventually you say which week it is. Um, and uh, there is this idea that if you 
is the counting as a whole, you've talked about this, the counting as a whole, is that the mitzvah, is it to count all 49 days or is it to count each day? And so if you forget to count a day, which I know I've done this Omer so far, you sort of stop saying the blessing, you keep counting, but you don't say the blessing anymore. There's, there's, yeah, there's a lot of specificity around how you count numeral, like the, the things you say, which I think is interesting that will come up later is you don't say like 18 days left until Shavuot. And you don't say like, this is like the 13th day since we left Egypt. You say this is day 13 of the Omer. So there is like a way in right. which we're counting up and we're landing ourselves squarely in the present of the day. It's not, uh, what do you say? It's not ordinal, it's cardinal. I don't I remember what those words mean, but it's like not yeah. 13th, oh. it's 13. Um, yeah, yeah, gotcha. There's also, I mean, in the Torah, this is this is commanded as an agricultural practice in that basically it coincides with this with the barley harvest and from the time you start having barley you bring an omer meaning a sheaf some some kind of amount of barley and there's an amount of barley offered at the temple every day of this period leading up to at the end you have shavuot which is a wheat offering is made and that's that's the celebration of the wheat harvest which comes a little later than the barley harvest and is sort of more more of a staple more of more, um, better for making bread when you got some good agricultural intel about the meaning of barley and wheat sort of in an yeah uh, yeah maybe yeah my farmer I, I i know a number of uh, transgender farmers uh-huh. Uh, uh transgender jewish in. yeah transgender jewish farmers specifically so i've got some uh you yeah you, good you people to talk to, to you won't hear this any anywhere else so get, get ready for <laughs> no there's not i mean I, just my friend just they just told me like um about that about how like the barley barley always comes earlier and it's more there can conceivably be a barley harvest and not be really much of a wheat harvest. So it's like agriculturally a thing that you're like, I, the barley's here. That means hopefully the wheat is going to come. You know, like, I think that's the, the valence of this ritual agriculturally. But um, it's sort of, it, it's just a cool thing that, that, this ritualizes that that emo- it's an emotional process that farmers are going through every year and in a in a feeling of like hope and it turns that into a into a spiritual thing to do and a ritual thing to do and a thing that that is part of our relationship with God and I think like that's one of the beautiful things that I think Judaism aims to do. Like you could think of a lot of Jewish rituals, like take something that's like already kind of in our hearts. Sometimes it's already in the year. The springtime is, is this rebirth moment and turn it into like, this is about us and God. It's a, it's Passover now. Springtime is now Passover. And that moment of rebirth and feeling of freedom is connected to this story of freedom and, and birth as a as a people 
anyway, there's something just beautiful about about that to me. Um, yeah, I. Well, anyway, I mean, I think we'll say more about we'll say more about that as we go. The other, I think, that sort of narrative journey between there's the journey between barley and wheat. The other journey, which I think we've sort of said in a glancing way, but just to be explicit about it, is that we're going between Pesach, Passover, and Shavuot, which are two of the three big pilgrimage holidays of the year. And if Pesach commemorates the exodus from Egypt, Shavuot commemorates the revelation of the Torah at Sinai. So it is, it's a journey from barley to wheat. It's also a journey from exodus to revelation, from the sort of initial catastrophic, chaotic birth of freedom to this moment of receiving both obligation and um, the cementing of a relationship between God and Israel as, as a people. Yeah. Well, well, let's, let's just let that lead, lead into question one, shall we? Yes, let's, let's shall. Question one, are we going away from, or are we going towards? And yeah, I mean, we're like, we're fleeing Egypt. We're literally at the beginning of the Omer. We just have this, this sort of, you know, we've still got the crumbs from our Egyptian um, kind bars in the bottoms of our backpacks, you know, and by the time, <laughs> by the time we get to Sinai, we have, that's all been like washed out and we're, we're sort of like hankering after what's next. So like, is this it- show is brought to you by kind granola <laughs> so we're, snacks. We're, uh, moving towards our next chapter of our podcast where we're seeking corporate sponsorship. Um <laughs> true journey of all queer liberation narratives is towards corporate sponsorship is nah fuck that um uh yeah but i sorry to distract no no no, please with a quip i just uh it's a it's a big question i mean i think this the answer of like are we going away from or are we going towards of course i'm gonna be non-binary about it um it's like you we you got to get out from under the thumb of oppression but getting out only starts to mean something when you realize there's somewhere there's a future there's some it's not just freedom from them trying to kill you it's freedom to become something and so like now we can breathe we can ask the question what do we want to become and this is like very live for me i don't know just in being queer and being trans like you have to get out of the closet you know you have to start you know, but you have to also understand that it's just starting, you know, it's, there's this great rebellion that is being like, I'm gonna go this way, which is unsanctioned, which is outside of your society. I'm leaving the world I'm, I was expected to be in servitude in. And you come out, but you're not you haven't become at that point what you want to become. That's not self-actualization. You know what I mean? 
you can just at that point start to actually think about how you might want to grow and where you might um this is a you here's a question that you asked me right before we started recording that I was like not only do I have no idea I, it never occurred to me to ask that question which is like do the Israelites when they leave Egypt know where they're going do they know that do they know what's supposed to happen next do they know they're going to Mount Sinai and I'd really it's I it's it's weird it's 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 almost emblematic of what I'm talking about that I never thought of to ask that like I'm like what no uh I thought Pesach was just like about getting out you know like and maybe they maybe us not knowing the answer to that question is actually picking up something about our our that story that the story of the bible is like you're not even supposed to be thinking about that and then then you have this moment like oh we're out here. We're out now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where, what are we trying to be? Yeah. And maybe. So that's, yeah, very interesting to me. And if any of our listeners happen to have any more tea about what are the clues in the text? Like, I, I, I'm just curious oh, if you're right about what, what are the moments or Midrash. Yeah. That would be, um, we'd love to hear. I mean, I, I, yeah, I just to emphasize that or echo what you're saying about, queer journeys too like I remember early in articulating my own sense of self there was a time where I really struggled even to like make my lips formed form around the words I'm a transgender woman I was just like I could say I'm not a boy I it was like it was much easier to just like say those words and I think that that's it can it can seem like uh it, it might seem like well, what are you what are you doing if you don't know where you're going? But I think it's actually okay to be in a space of not knowing where you're going because it is, as you say, it's like about shaking things off. I mean, I I was I've been thinking about the word waywardness in terms of journeys. Like we're counting these forty nine days. We think it's a linear journey from A to B, but such journeys are never linear. Um, and this word wayward, which is a word I love um, for many reasons, but it. Maybe think of this book, um, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments by Sadia Hartman, which is this beautiful. Um, what, what's, their, what's their first name? Sadia. 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 I don't actually much not sure how to say her name. Um, but she's an academic who writes like beautiful, like poetic experiment in writing what history is. And she uses photographs and is writing about um, queer people, black people in the early part of the 20th century in cities. And uh, what does she say? She says, she's describing this one person who she's writing about, uh, Maddie, and she says, there was nothing precious or unusual about seeking, venturing, testing, trying, speculating, discovering, exploring new avenues, breaking with traditions, defying law, making it, except that hardly anyone imagined that young Black women might be involved in this project too. Few guessed that Maddie was trying to make something of herself, however uncertain she was about what might be, and however desperate to shake loose the expectations and demands of others, which always boiled down to drudge and whore. Better an er errant path than the known world, better loose than stuck. And I love that, that idea, like better an errant path than the known world, better loose than stuck. That like, yeah. sometimes you don't actually need to have a clear direction. You just need to be checking in at every, at these specific moments of like, am I, am I on autopilot? Am I on this path that I'm just on? Because what's what I'm thinking I'm doing? Or am I like making a choice? Am I like moving 
am I, am I reminding myself of my own felt freedom at every moment? And sometimes that awareness is going to send you down wiggly, windy, non, non-directional roads. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also, I think this counting the days practice, like brings out something about being in this in between, not ready, not knowing. My instinct is that they don't know. They don't know where they're going. And if anyway, surely they don't know how long it's going to be. You know, they don't, it's not like seven weeks is not like described as like, here's how, here's how much time you have to wait until we get the law or like, here's how much time we're going to be in the, the wilderness for. And that period of time is renegotiated and turns into 40 years. And so they are definitely in the, in confusion and in moments of like, where am I, where am I going? What's going on? Like, maybe that's part of the counting of the days. It's like, here's what is going to come in order this day, then the next day, Mm -hmm. then the next day, you know, like this is time is like that. Like you can't keep any of it and you keep getting more of it. (laughs) Um, And I guess there's something you could, that could equally be like, make you, like permanently anxious or like but i think it's more to me it just makes you let go it makes you be like i can rely on the sun you know going up and down i I, in the absence of all other certainty about my path like i am going forward in time i really love that which i mean i there's an element in what you're saying that i think is like maybe a pivot into our next question but before we rush towards that towards away from i don't want to rush away from this question that i that relationship to time i mean what i the thing that landed in my belly when you said that is that like i just feel so one feels so held by that like i mean in my mind it's like held by god because it's just like i don't i'm not in control of the passage of time but i do know that the sun will rise tomorrow and god willing i'll be alive and we'll see it rise but that's there's something there's like a deep surrender and faith and a, what I think is like a relationship with God implicit in that, that you, you just have to sort of surrender to this daily. Yeah. One thing after the next. Yeah. And yeah, it's funny. There's this weird divide in the, in the Bible, I think of like how we view our people in the wilderness, because like, famously they're complaining a lot they are they keep saying let's go back to egypt what are we doing like doubting the whole story and then but then there's also this later i mean there's like a thing in jeremiah where where he's like remembering the wilderness period as a golden age for the jewish people when and and it's like god says basically like remember when you followed after me in the wilderness mm. in the terrifying wasteland with so much faith you know um and it's true it's like i mean i don't know like the people kind of get a bad rap for like they they keep they have all these moments of crisis and anxiety but on a day-to-day level they're like yep we'll go where the pillar of cloud goes we're all together let's go together you know it's kind of amazing to think of a 
a group of people like functionally traveling together Hmm. with no clear yeah like end point of the journey or just like so much uncertainty and so little experience which is a beautiful clarification about what it means to go towards something because they are following the cloud they're fought like in that jeremiah it's they're following god that there is a light that you move towards even in that uncertainty you know they're not yeah they're not they're not going towards a house with a hot tub they're going towards this like little flicker of something sacred that they every day wonder if it's going to be there and then every day they wake up and get better at seeing it and feel it more and more strongly and feel it more and more strongly and just like follow after that little flicker. Yeah. Um, And maybe that's sometimes what you need when you get exhausted by the work of rejection, the work of rebelling, the work of pushing away from. um, Yeah. Right. I know we, we, we as people who, I don't know, who yearn, <laughs> we're people, I mean, I, I guess I'm thinking of like, trans people are people who yearn, you know? Um, and we yearn for, I mean, at least we start out with like, just like a yearning for a, for sort of a different self, a more true self that is allowed to be sort of. We also like yearn. I mean, we, I think we always, you and I in these conversations always come back to activism and its frustrations, just like believe that things should and could be better. And like anyone who yearns like that has moments where they're just like, this project is fucking unbearably disappointing. Yeah. Like, un and unbearably unstable and without guarantee of success or even progress. And like, yeah, to analogize these things, like the yearning for a, for a better life for myself, the yearning for a better life, a world for us. I don't know. It's like, it's actually powerful to, to to put it next to the the sort of faithful walking after God in in an unknown wilderness and and counting the days. That seems like a beautiful segue into our next question. Question two. Love the way you phrased it. Why is this counting personal? I kind of want to start, will you say just, you brought this first mention of the word Omer in Tanakh, which I think is actually sort of the core of this question. Right, yeah. I, I just also want to know before I quote this this concept that no one ever, I never, nobody ever said anything about the Omer being connected to this part of the Torah in particular. And I just sort of, happened to find it like looking through exodus as i'm just constantly doing um but yeah uh in in context we're in shemot chapter 16 and this is when they have come out of egypt 
and they've gone a few days journey. They're out of food. They are, you know, having a crisis and uh, God starts sending mana from heaven every day. So food falls from the sky. Uh, and here is the first occurrence of the word Omer in the Bible that I, th- I think, unless I have this wrong, listeners, correct me if I'm wrong. This is the thing that Hashem has commanded. Each household shall gather as much as it requires to eat, an Omer to a person for as many of you as there are. Each household shall fetch according to those in its tent. So an Omer, in this context, is like a some kind of measurement some some kind of set known amount and that's where omer first happens and it's lo and behold after exodus before before mount sinai um and it's 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 sort of the answer to this period of uncertainty and and doubt, and are we going to die out here? What's the plan? Every day, every person gets an omer of sustenance, and that's what's going to get you through. Well, and I, I, I mean, to, the thing that made me think that that's connected to this question is that the Sforno's commentary on this verse is that, like, how much is it, like, how much was a portion of manna? And he says, people would take what they wanted. Like some people would take just like one little loaf. Other people would grab four loaves, but lo and behold, by the time they got home, everybody had the same amount. Everybody right. had enough, just enough to sustain them. And so. Well, that's also, that's also in the, in the text. It's, oh, like, okay. I mean, this is also, well, to bring in another wild card, this is also where Shabbat first gets observed because on Friday, Ooh. a double amount of, of manna, comes down and so any other day you can't save you can't hoard the mana it just rots but if but on friday you you gather a double portion and it doesn't rot and it and it stays good to eat the next day and on and the next day is shabbat the seventh day and you don't go out and get it's like a commandment don't go gather mana this day and then some people do and god gets mad Anyway, so interesting to me that in this same context of uncertainty, a the Shabbat practice begins and like a regular weekly spiritual practice of like trusting that you'll have enough. That's where it starts. Yeah. Yeah. That it's 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 trust both that things are going to be enough and like a little bit of latitude to sort of make your own guess about what your portion is that you, you know, like that light, there's a Proverbs, every heart knows its own bitterness. Like every stomach Mm -hmm. knows its own hunger. Every, every, every gut knows its own portion. Every, every, um, so that's this... like, so that's like what Sforno is bringing in, kind of like each person had their own how much they wanted, and that's how much it turned out to be, sort of. Yeah, is, the, is his idea. And I think that 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 connects to the Omer 
both because it's like this is as I think you like really beautifully point out this is the word way that where the way that word enters our narrative as like a sense of a daily portion of sustenance that is like this very personally gathered thing but also because the mitzvah of counting the omer is a counting that is our an individual counting we each do the count it's not like Pesach and telling the story with each other is a thing we do together. That's a, like a thing that happens between people, but this counting is a thing that happens individually. And I apparently like legally, you know, if you're, this is this legalistic distinction, but you come, say you fly from Japan to New York and time zone is all screwy. You lose a day, you gain a day, whatever it is. When you get to New York, if it's Shabbat in New York, it's Shabbat in New York, no matter what it is in Japan at the time or what your body's time is. But if you, so that time is like a, a a shared local collective experience of time. If you, if that happens and you come from Japan to New York and you're on day 26 of the Omer and the people around you are on day 27 or day 25, you stay on your day of the Omer because you're counting your experience of days. Right. So your count is still valid, despite that you're in a community of people whose count is totally is is off, is yes. off, is different than yours. Which I think is kind of incredible that this is like, that this is a, we've just had this big collective moment of liberation. This is like a deeply personal and particular and, and, and idiosyncratic um, count in its way. Um, yeah. I'm just, I, I, I think there's also something to be said that like, the first thing that happens in the leaving Egypt before they've left is the institution of a calendar. That's like, they're okay. about to go out of Egypt. It's pre-10th plague. And God tells the people, this is going to be the first month on your calendar in the springtime, the month of Passover. On the fifteenth day of this month, we do Passover, and it's and the tenth plague is going to happen. Anyway, it's just I mean it's it's profoundly significant that like the institution of the calendar comes before you can even leave Egypt. Before you can, it's like it's like a reorientation of the a fundamental reorientation of the culture and and mind, you know. But it's not just like here, this is the communal calendar now. And we're like, you can hang it on the wall. It's like, also, we're going to start counting every day individually. I mean, I don't know if they're counting the Omer when they left Egypt, but like, but something happened to time is the point. And something at Pesach, something happens to time where you're not on the oppressor's time anymore. You're, you're like, so communally you're not. And then like, there's also, I think the Omer might represent sort of a personal transformation of the experience of time of like, you're going to notice your time, mm. you know, because you're free now and you're trying to grow. You're going somewhere. You're going toward revelation you're free to you can grow now and 
there is now a reason to notice every day and for each day to be different from the last. That opens counting the Omer for me. That's like, oh, like I suddenly I get it when, when I think about it that way. I love that so much. I love that phrase, something happens to time. I mean, it's like a reverse Dayenu. It's like, it's not enough that we leave Egypt. We have to leave Egypt time. And it's not enough that we leave Egypt time. It's that you individually yeah. are accountable to making sense of time in your own personal way. Right. Right. And it's like, I mean, I think maybe folded into that. I mean, I don't want to overstate anything, but like that this might be a dream of a not only our own nation that's not egypt but an anti-oppression themed nation a an egalitarian themed nation and that time itself is like democratized it's for each of us to keep track of as will be like you know keeping commandment like everything about this is like this is for everybody this is not for the priest and the king um you're going to have to learn this Torah. You're going to have to grow as a person. You're going to be asked to do these things. Um, I don't know. Like there's something like to me, there's something there that is the, that is sort of the fuck you I'm trying to uncover in, (laughs) in this process of like, why does, why does Judaism seem like such a fuck you to, the mainstream to to oppressive hierarchies this is the kind of thing i'm talking about i love it i love it um but sorry then there's sphere out well i don't even know that we need to get into it that much like this is so the yeah there's this okay here's the just logical connection and then maybe it's an encouragement to dig deeper into this if you feel so inspired which i I just feel like not adequate to talk about it too much. One of the mm-hmm. things that's acknowledged in this holiday happens to be on Lagba Omer is the sort of like the writing of the Zohar, the sort of arrival of a mystical an explicit mystical tradition, a written mystical, mystical tradition within Judaism. And the 49 days of the Omer have been divided into seven weeks. And each week is mm. dedicated to a particular sphira and there are, there are actually 10 spherot, but there are seven that are accounted for in the Omer. And the spherot yeah. are the, um, you could say it's like the emanation. One way of people say it is the emanations. The image that I like best is it's like when you shine a light through a, a crystal and it refracts into many different colors. Like those different colors that refract from the light are the different spherot. It doesn't mean that God isn't one, but it means that it's ref- that God is refracted in this way. So it's like the different moods the different personalities the different dimensions of our understanding of godliness and so we we there's a sort of way of counting each day in the omer as being not only the week that this is the week of this sphira but like each day is a sphira within the sphira so you have like right and and i think there's like a beautiful way of seeing that both as a relation as a way of understanding like today's the day we meditate on this element of god but it's also given that we are created in the image of God, these are all elements of who we are. And it's a way of seeing the many facets of our own existence and experience. So there are some beautiful uh, mystical practices and meditations to be to be done in the course of these 
these 49 days using the right. spirit. Yeah. And, and it, each day sort of like a different pair of them intersect. Yeah. Um, I mean like, yeah, we're recording this in the, in the week, of, in the second week of the Omer. The sphera is the sphera of the week is gvura, which means like strength or power or firmness, uh, things like that. Um, strength, I guess, is the. And so each week, each day of this week of strength is like kindness and strength, and st- the second day is strength and strength. Third day is um, harmony or or beauty and strength. Tiferet. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's like, it's a beautiful way of like seeing, it's like a prompt to bring something uh, singular out of each of these days, which is very, it's very cool to me. Let's ask another question. Question three. This is going to feel unexpected. Question three. Is Zionism a spiritual problem or a political one? Is Zionism a spiritual problem or a political one? This is what, this is always the headline in Haaretz, I think. And also in Al Jazeera. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. What a thorny thing. So the reason, the reason we're asking that question, the Omer is, um, within the Omer, I don't, honestly, I don't know how much this is pure coincidence or if it was sort of planned this way, but there are these civic Zionist holidays that all fall in the Omer period. Um, One is Yom HaShoah, the Holocaust Remembrance Day. Um, Another is Yom HaZikaron, sort of Memorial Day in Israel for... for, um, deaths and war. Then the next day is Yom Ha'atzma'ut, the Israeli Independence Day, called the Nakba, the sort of catastrophe by um, by Palestinians. And uh, then there's, right, there's Yom Yerushalayim, Jerusalem Day, which, has, which is an anniversary from 1967 of winning back a, a control over Jerusalem by State of Israel. So we were just really debating whether, like, how much to to bring this in. And I think what what compels me to talk about these holidays, I mean, I guess to to put it mildly, I have a a bit of a complicated relationship with with Zionism. Um, I, um, I, I guess I don't need to explain it totally, but like, I am just like desperately critical of the state of Israel. Um, and just like see that it has wrought such unnecessary devastation and, and has become an oppressive force. I also would not call myself an anti-Zionist. I, I would I would call myself, I would say I'm pro-Israel. I'm, I'm, I would say I want, I, sometimes I would say I wish I could be pro-Israel. But I am a person, and this is, I 
I recognize the controversy of this statement, but I'm a person that thinks the state of Israel should exist and that it should be, I think it is a good that it is the Jewish state. The way that it is, I think is wrong. So that's a whole hand grenade of, of, of thorny stuff to talk about, which we don't have to like pick up every thorn and let it prick us. I I guess what did compel me to talk about this is that like this I just feel like Zionism or or sort of the state of the Israel-Palestine conflict is a spiritual problem and and it we should not forget that. We should not forget that like to be Jewish in this world in 2022, you have to reckon with the fact that the state of Israel is exists and that the Palestinian people exist and we don't have peace, you know, like, like that, that is a spiritual problem as well as a political problem, I guess. And, and to relegate it to, to take it out of spiritual conversations and just put it only in political conversations seems like a mistake to me. Um, I don't know if, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that that's actually kind of an incredible, I, this is a, a, a question that you've formulated and I think is like quite profound that you framed it this way. I mean, we, yeah, this is, a, this is, we've had, long conversations about these things and i feel like i'm i'm like grateful to be uh, yeah i'm 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 fumbling the way you're fumbling i feel like for instance like yeah, i, I know, like we don't I, have to go on the record here and also no, like and i we're, we're figuring it out you know as everyone is but i think that like because i think like i've i think my inclination is i think i fall a little bit more on the anti-zionist side of the the horse than mm-hmm, than I've, you do yeah. and i and i think that like the at the there's there's a big there's a big zionist horse and everyone's falling off it and i'm on one side but i think that the like <laughs> the 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 thing that orients me in that way and then i think that is sort of the baseline orientation in in each of our perspectives on these things like really comes down to a set of views about what um a set of spiritual assumptions about the nature of the world and the nature of political power and the nature of um, what the the meaning of a promised land in this tradition is and the meaning of Jewish history and a long legacy of of trauma and and um, and violences. Like when you get down, when you dig deep enough into these things, it really gets at these larger questions. And I think that that. Um, you said at one point in one of these conversations that the assumption, and I don't tell me if I'm misquoting, like the assumption that, that a political state would be the fulfillment of the idea of a promised land or the idea of a spiritual goal is an, mm-hmm. it's a spiritually ugly idea, regardless of whether we believe that the state of Israel has a political reason to exist. Like that this is, I yeah. think just framing it as like, what does this mean as a spiritual problem? Um, and given that we have, as Jews, we have to reckon with this 
political reality? What does that mean? I think that even just asking the question to me is like kind of a profound answer or a way of addressing this this dimension of the Omer. Yeah. And I, I guess to clarify, like to me, the, the principal way that Zionism is a spiritual problem is, is it, it's a problem of safety. And I mean, it's, a, it's an ethical problem, I guess. I mean, but to me, yes, ethical problems are spiritual problems. It's a problem of peace, you know? It's a problem of like oppression. Are, you know, to, to see Jewish power become institution, institutionalized oppression is like a, it's something that changes the meaning of the exodus from Egypt. You know what I mean? It threatens to, you know, and then, I mean, and then the other part of it is like a lot of the drive. I mean, my drive that there be a, a Jewish state, I guess is like, is, is about, protection for the Jews and, and, and safety for the Jews. I mean, that's, that's the biggest driver of it. And it is my dream that that, which feels necessary to me, and I might be wrong about that, you know, it, it, it feels like a good in itself to me. And I might be wrong about that. But the, I thought that the dream was that you could have that without your foot on somebody's neck, you know, without, um, just crushing a population of people who live there. And uh, I mean, it, 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 it could fast turn into just a political and sort of like tachlis, like how do we do like conversation that's like, what should, what policy should we pursue? Which is not the conversation I want to have here. I, I'm in, I guess I'm like, I'm, I want to connect this also to the Omer and counting the Omer. And if statehood could be, an analogy to getting out of Egypt, which like, is it, I don't, maybe it's not, but if, if you're looking at like, we have some kind of, we've gained some kind of, uh, reprieve from the threat of death or, or or something like that from, we've gained some kind of power or relief. What do we be, we're in this time now of the Omer. We haven't gotten our Torah. We don't know how this society is going to work. No one has given us a rule book. And like, we're in this time that like, we don't, um, it's an inchoate, it's an unfinished community. It's an unfinished what are we going to do next? And it's sort of a live question. Are we going to make our own Egypt now? Is that what's going to happen next? Where we we get our own society and we make it one that is like xenophobic? Or are we going to, you know, are we going to be prepared to receive the Torah, which tells us don't oppress a foreigner because you are a foreigner in Egypt or don't, you know, 
all this gets stretched if you're trying to like directly analogize it to Israel Palestine. No, but like, I think the I'm trying to get at this little kernel of like we have this time where it's not figured out for us, and we've just gained some leeway. What are we going to do with that? Well, and it's not. I think I think what the kernel you're trying to get at is really so. If if there is a center to the Omer, it feels like that's what it is. I mean, there's this to sort of give another angle into that. There's this kind of pun play that the spot Emet does that I came across that I like where he says that the Omer is about turning the letter Aleph into the letter Ayin. And he gets this from the the commandment to count the Omer, which is begins with the letter Ayin, um, comes in the Parsha that is called Parshat Emor, which begins the letter Aleph. And so there's this... Same letters except... Yeah, except yeah same sound, but different, different letters. And Aleph is the first letter of the alphabet and mystically it represents this sort of like you know, when you say an Aleph, it's almost like it doesn't, ex- it's a sound that doesn't exist because it isn't, it's almost not a consonant, it's not quite a consonant. Like it's, it's about the sort of expansiveness, pure emanation, otherworldly divine energy. And Ayn is really in the thick of it and is like thicker in your throat is a little bit more purchased to it. And so it's about bringing this sort of otherworldly spiritual energy down into the real world. Like another example he gives is mm. the Aleph to Ayn is Adonai, the almighty which begins with Aleph to Olam world, which begins with Ayin. Like, how do you take divine energy and bring it into the world in which we live? He says, like, how do you take or light, which begins with Aleph and make it Ayin, I, which begins with Ayin, letter yeah. Ayin. Like, how do you, how do you make it light as like a numinous substance in the universe and make it visible? How do you perceive it? And I you bring it into the human body, right? bring it yes. into the human body. So like, we, I just think that we, as much as we see this Exodus moment as like, this incredible transcendent experience of liberation. And as much as we're doing the work internally of a kind of spiritual liberation, we can't avoid the fact that we have to bring these things into the world and into the world of practice. And that that to me is like why your question is so important because it's saying that these questions of Zionism are not separate from these spiritual questions. Like the, the work, the spiritual work is to bring them into the practical world and we can't ignore the practical world as, as something that's separate from. Right. And it's and it's sort of a moment of 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 peril, you know, like oh, I yearn for freedom. Now I'm freed. Like uh, what? Oh shit! Like yeah. I might starve to death now. Yeah. Um, and yeah, in that same way, like yeah, right. The word of the transcendent word of God actually falls down onto the ground as food. Yeah. You know. Um. And like that is the feeling of the come down from Pesach into the Omer, and the come down, and the same thing of like, it's a, like I yearn for Jerusalem for centuries, you know. And, okay, like here it is. Now you're in it. Uh, there's other people here too. Like this is reality, you know. Um, and and I don't like. I just don't think. I just think you you want the yearning for freedom. You want the yearning for Jerusalem anyway. Like, even though you yearn for it and then you get it and now you have a bunch of problems. Yeah. Like, like there is a way through those those problems and, like, there is a way to turn that, I don't know, to turn light into... 
a slimy little eyeball seeing things. Yeah. Um, um, I think we should end on another slimy little eyeball for this question. Yeah. Yeah. Let's ask. Question four. Question four. Is the Omer boring? Well, we hope you think the answer is no. After these first <laughs> three questions. Uh-huh. Yeah. But yeah. we gotta ask. We gotta ask. Why do we think it's why would why are we implying that the Omer is boring? Right. Well, first of all, it is like it's it's literally it's just it's between these two great climactic holidays, leaving Egypt and receiving the Torah, and it's just fundamental. It's it's not a holiday. It is not a climax. It is it is by its nature non-climactic. And it's just, a, it has something to do with day-to-day life, you know? It cannot be a peak experience for seven weeks. It just can't, like, you cannot yeah. have that. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's something important in it, uh, in it asking you to do a ritual that is not, it's just not a spiritual peak experience. Yeah. It's also that there's, even as everyone talks about it as like, we count because we're so excited about Shavuot and we're counting with anticipation, like 49 days is a long time. And it's, (laughs) you, you know, when you count day 26, you're aware that there are a lot of steps between now and that moment. You feel how excited can you be on, on day 26? Right. Um, I mean, the other thing that I think is like, historically that gets associated with Omer it's a time technically of grief like you're not supposed to have a wedding during the Omer except on Lagba Omer which is the one day in which that lets up which is the 33rd day um maybe reason, also Rosh, Rosh Chodesh Rosh Chodesh okay uh, yeah I but, but and that's because um there was this horrible plague and Rabbi Akiva lost tw- I want to say 12,000 or was it 24,000 students I think it might have been 24,000 canonically. Which is a lot of, it's quite an operation if Akiva was training that many people, but that's a lot of people who died in this horrible plague. Um, and, yeah. you know, there's, we just had this, um, plagues were a big part of the narrative of Exodus, which we just told, and those plagues were pretty catastrophic and intense and immediate. Um, but plague doesn't always get experienced in a, climactic and immediate way as we as we know from um covid you know it just sort of like drags on like what does it mean to see grief not as a thing that is like an intense moment of pain and suffering but as like a daily extension of prolonged right zoom meetings and and like (laughs) and headlines and awareness of 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 suffering like what there's there's grief that is there's grief that is like a traumatic and an intense moment and there's grief that is like boring in its way. Yeah. Um, and this or is, a... it, I mean, I'd say all grief is, is eventually boring because like, yeah. yes, there's the stab of, of loss. And then you just keep living hopefully. And you live with, with that grief. And I mean, like this is, I, I just think there's always this feeling for me when somebody dies and it's just brutal 
and then it's some sometimes even more brutal to just like i don't know take out the trash that week because it's just like okay so life just keeps going for me like i just i just have to keep living even though this person didn't even though i've been stabbed and something's been taken away from me that i'll never get back um and then after that there are just life actually continues emotionally too and you have wonderful happy times and just like you live in the world without grief except you still lost that person and you still have the grief what it makes me think of is like um a general both boredom and grief of like just living in a unredeemed world you know yeah a feeling that i mean you you could you could talk in a messianic sense like maybe we are waiting for the redeemed world and the the future where everything will be something like perfect or or you know an end of war a utopian vision and if you're thinking about that, you have to, but I don't know. It's just like every day didn't, the world didn't get redeemed today either, you know? Uh, nope, not yet. Uh, and it's boring. And uh, do you keep, I mean, like the, the Hasidim are like, the Mashiach could come tomorrow. The Mashiach could come today. Uh, we like now, you know, and, and they never want to stop saying like, like we are waiting, we are asking for a better world right now. There's something so beautiful about that to me. Um, I guess yes. There's also like I don't know. It's it's like boring to be an activist, right? Like it's boring to just like work on the slow work of like let's just try to make this little part of the world a little bit better. Um, yeah. I don't know why I'm feeling an impulse to talk about photography, but <laughs> I, but this is Bring tied it. to what you're saying. I, I take really bad pictures on my phone, partly because my phone is sort of old and crappy, but also because I'm like not a, a really good, I'm really, I'm not really a good photographer, but I'm, I'm really not a good photographer. But I think <laughs> that I sort of, I sort of like, badly framed and badly lit pictures like I there's a private part of me that likes that and I I I feel like I post them sometimes and nobody else quite likes them as much as I do but I think that (laughs) part of what I like about bad photographs is that they feel um they have the feel of a boring day they have like the feel of a day that isn't like a good day Um, yeah and you know I I think about when you sort of like zoom like scroll through your photographs in that like album mode where they're all really tiny like it the way you can experience the motion of time I think is incredible and there's this uh, poet Bernadette Mayer who had a project memory where she took like hundreds and hundreds of photographs over time and this is before digital photography so she was developing like photographs that were not even that great photographs and then just like putting them together and it was like a now it's a book but it was like an installation in this museum and it was less about like every one of these photographs is a beautiful photograph and more about like, what does it mean to experience time as a series of 
mediocre photographs and there's an incredible Uh beauty there. And I think that it then like that beauty then gets translated back into the individual photographs. So I think that like, you know, you're talking about the daily work of activism as being boring. Like the daily work of being a person is, can be boring or, or frumpy or unsexy. And I think that like, yeah, if, if taking a photograph is like a metaphor for like the moment of counting a day or the moment of acknowledging here I am in this time, when you look back on that photograph or when you see it in the context of the succession of days, there is like, you realize that there's a sanctity there. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Right. To, to, to mark something, but not try to mark it as like, not to mark it as a climax to mark it as like, this is just a day. Yeah. And I'm also going to mark yeah. that it is just a day. Um, there's this element of Jewish ritual of counting these days in a boring way is like some something to do with that. There's this thing I love so much from the Talmud where where they're talking about um I wish I could I wish I had the actual source, but I think I can remember it was some fidelity. I don't remember what Masechet it's in, but um, they're talking about what's the most important verse in the Torah. So one guy says, Shema Yisrael, God is one. Um, somebody says, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Maybe somebody says, like, love the stranger as yourself. I don't, there's different answers. And then, Somebody who I think is not identified, which is poignant in itself, is like, most important verse is um, slaughter one of these calves in the morning and one of these calves in the afternoon. <laughs> um, the, the daily the daily sacrificial offering. Um, and everyone's like, yep, he's got it. That's the one. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, so <laughs> just, I, 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 it's so satisfying to me that yeah, I love that and, and like emblematic of a Jewish perspective that like, um, I guess just a reminder that like what holds us together is, is not peak experiences. We are held together by the thread of boring daily devotion you know um and like if you could only have one thing it wouldn't be passover the festival of freedom it would be here's what we do every day and it doesn't change at all and uh it would be the 26th day of the omer the most important holiday of the jewish year (laughs) yeah Let's celebrate it this this time. Uh, we should really release this on the twenty sixth day of the Omer. No, but like, it, it, there's like something very important there. I think that like that like actually that Judaism wants to do that thing we were talking about from the last question. Like, take this transcendent stuff and just bring it down into your glass of water, you know, um, and bring it into your everyday life the just the boring parts of your life um the alka-seltzer of religions (laughs) yes 
<laughs> let it fizz up. Um, uh, I, <laughs> it's like one of my favorite things. It's something that um, uh, Rabbi um, Soloveitchik, Joseph Soloveitchik, I think his name, um, wrote about in the 20th century. Um, I mean, yeah, there's a lot to say about it, and we've talked about it before, but like, we're actually, we're not asked to, in any Jewish ritual, actually, we're not asked to have like a peak. We're not asked to like go up to heaven and talk to God when we light the Shabbat candles. It's like, just light the Shabbat candles and sort of know why you're doing it. And you've done, no one did that mitzvah any better than you because you did it. It's like, and there's something very egalitarian about that. Um, you don't have to be like a spiritual genius. You, you just light this candle at the right time. Um, and you did it, you know? Uh, and I love that. Amen is all I have to that. I think you said it beautifully. So maybe, maybe now you, you can start the mundane methodical process of waiting for our next podcast episode to drop. <laughs> mundane and wayward process of our and wayward, yeah. releasing podcast episodes off schedule. I mean, I heard this, I did, I wanted to, 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 to talk about this writer, Amy Walk Katz, um, just in the Sidor that I have, um, in the Sidor Lev Shalem, just wrote a little mini essay about how the Omer, the Omer is like a pregnancy, and that's a time you are looking forward but you're not counting down to it you you're counting it makes sense to count how long you've been pregnant that's what everyone does i'm i'm 30 weeks pregnant or you know um i just want to shout out amy walk cats for that idea and like the idea that like you're in this uncertain process of looking forward and I mean, kind of the Omer, you know when it ends, but like, you actually don't know what's going to happen each day. You don't know what that Shavuot is going to necessarily be like. There is a lot that's unknown. And each day, like in pregnancy, like this is Amy Walk Katz's thing, like each day matters. Like I had a little app when my partner, Wild Rosemary, was pregnant that was like, this week, your baby grew eyes. You know, like it, every time I looked at it, it blew my mind. I was like, oh my God, because this week was essential. Like each of these days is, is there's something happening that can't be skipped. I, I'm trying, I want to feel my life like that. I want to feel the Omer like that. I want to count the Omer in that way, like. Each of these days matters, and we are actually growing each day. The analogy also really just like works for being trans. And uh, I don't know if you have like an anniversary of anything, but I don't know. I can't. I can't. I'm. I'm three or four. I'm not quite four months on hormone replacement therapy and 
I'm seeing myself. I'm I'm just I know I'm I'm bringing my body through very methodical very gradual growth and change. And I don't know exact I don't I don't really know where what these developments will actually add up to and what, like what I'm becoming. And I have this like st- still just feeling of excitement about it Mm. and like today too today too something that matters happened yeah yeah as we've talked about like with that any answer of like why are you doing this is inadequate because there's no reason it's just like there's some mm. deep part of me that says yes, and that's all I need to know. Um, yeah, right. You can you can theorize about it, and yet, like, at the end of the day, it's you're just you trust that you're going somewhere. Well, well, <laughs> that about does it. That about does it. Next stop, Mount Sinai. <laughs> Stand clear of the closing doors. <laughs> until until next time. <laughs> Bye. Bye.